Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion, so slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. I did. I can't see. Whoa. Oh, oh. Oh, good job. Good job. Depeche mode is cool. Are you into Depeche mode? Okay. No. I thought you might be. I thought we were going to do a thing where we wore band shirts for a while. Uh, well, I'll do that next time. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll join in, but you never noticed mine, so I was like, oh, never mind. What do you mean I never noticed yours? You did it like once, and I said exactly. that. And you had a Soundgarden shirt on, and I thought we talked about it. <laughs> nope, nope. I'll hold it again. By the way, Luis, this is the podcast. We've yeah. started. <laughs> well, hey there, everybody. It's 246 of Ep Percussion Podcast. We're recording on August 2nd, and we're releasing on August 27th. So, hey, how's it going? I'm Casey Cangelosi. With me, I've got the regulars, Carly Vinas here. Hey, Carly. Hey, everybody. And Ben Charles is here. Hi, everybody. Ksenia Komjanovich is here. Hey, Casey. Are you sick of people asking about the hurricane? Not yet. Ask me again. It wasn't a big deal, right? No, it was. It wasn't a big deal. Yeah. yeah. Now it's Florida. Let's uh, hope Carly does well. Anywho, you know, today on Music History, like I said, we're releasing August 27th. And I was actually going to ask Ben because he is our resident Beatles expert. And... I was going to say, Ben, how much would you pay for the original John Lennon lyrics of A Day in the Life? How much would you pay at auction for that? I mean, I don't have any money, so I, <laughs> but I would <laughs> imagine it would go for, for quite a bit. What do you think it went for? Uh, I'll say 150 grand. That's pretty good. This stuff is always lower than you would think. I don't know if you all remember, but A Lock of Beethoven's Hair went for like i think fifteen hundred dollars or something like really really cheap i reported on a long time ago uh but this was in 1992 it fetched eighty seven thousand dollars today so i still think that's quite a lot i mean considering how many songs they had uh but yeah those handwritten lyrics go go a long way yeah what then yeah, I was going to say, I mean, one of the things is like, it's cool to have, but there, there's a lot of little scraps of paper related to bands and, and it's like, you know, how much, how much is it really worth? It's not, you know, I don't know. Of course. It's cool, but it's, it's not, it's not that unique, but no, that, that reminds me when I saw Paul McCartney in concert a year or two ago, he had this great story about the first demo they ever recorded. And I think it, it was not with, the, well, I know it was not with the final Beatles lineup. Like, I think the drummer was different. I don't even know if George Harrison was in the group yet. But was they were Mike Portnoy in drumming? I think, I think that sounds right. <laughs> uh, but no, they, they recorded this demo tape and they only got one copy. So they made a deal that Paul got it for one week. And then like John got it for one week. And then the next guy got it for a week. And then the next guy got it for a week. And then he kept it. <laughs> and what do you mean the demo yeah yeah they just got oh, one oh. copy of it so they just took turns with who got it and then when it got to the last guy he just hang, hung on to it 
And Paul McCartney said, I bought it back from him many years later at a greatly increased price. Interesting. <laughs> because obviously that, you know, the original first demo ever recorded of the Beatles would actually be worth quite a bit. It's um, it's, cra- it's crazy what these like older rock star folks like Gene Simmons from Kiss, Paul McCartney, Michael Jackson. There, so many of them you read about their like royalty seeking and keeping copyrights and just like the amount of money that's floating around is just crazy. Um, and yeah, so and it's I mean it's also weird to me in in any musical genre. I'm like Elliot Carter is a great example of this when he was still alive, and Paul McCartney is a living example of this. Like, oh yeah, here's a piece of music I wrote 50 years ago. Like, a composer to be still performing or you know guest conducting. Oh, yeah from 50 years ago. Matt Strauss had a great story about Houston Symphony had Elliot Carter, I think in the 90s, and they played a piece he wrote like in like 1940 and a world premiere, something like that. (laughs) Uh, Well, hey, speaking of astronomical amounts of money, the the bigger news item I was going to mention today was that today on August 27th in 1892, the Met caught fire at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York, and supposedly a workman named Hogan threw a cigarette into oily rags in the paint room backstage where they're building sets. And apparently the fireproof curtain was down that day for some reason, or they had replaced it with a non-fireproof curtain. I couldn't quite tell. Uh, but of course, that fireproof curtain is there for just such an occasion. And I don't know if you all have ever been to a big opera house. I went to the uh, Theatro Cologne in Buenos Aires once, and that curtain is incredibly huge. I mean, it's humongous. It is, it is like... I mean, it's like it's like an eight-story building. It's it's it, the curtain is eight stories high. I mean, it's huge, humongous. I don't think the Met is that big, but if that curtain caught fire, I mean, yeah, incredible. So, anyway, this is a big fire, big historic fire at the Met, and uh, Hogan, Hogan, what are you doing? He threw a cigarette into some uh, oily paint rags, and apparently the. Uh, whole whole stage was in flames before the fire department even came. So subscribers at the time were paying uh, three thousand plus a year in their subscription fees. So by today's money, that's eighty five thousand uh, dollars, which is insane. And restorations upped it to upped the subscriber fees, I guess, or request to ten thousand plus a year, which is two hundred and eighty three thousand dollars in today's money. The interior damages amounted to upwards three hundred thousand dollars, which is like like you'd expect. This is like a building. I mean, this is eight and a half million dollars in today's money. The stockholders were really pissed off because they were told the building was totally fireproof, and maybe it would have if not for the curtain but it doesn't sound like it oily rags would probably go pretty far so they reopened the met in uh, 1893 the next year and that's where they stay for the next uh 73 years i have a few pictures for you also if anyone's uh not watching on youtube uh, there's some pictures here and you see ben's up in the corner hey ben yeah, so you get to look at Ben. Anyway, here's just a couple of the photos. Like, here's the damage after the fire. Here's the fire, apparently, from uh, 7th Avenue. And here's that side of the building uh, before the fire. This is the old Met location. And I tried to look up why the Met moved to Lincoln Center. 
I thought, oh, maybe it has something to do with this fire or maybe they weren't pleased with the restorations or something like that. I didn't find anything like that. And I didn't really find a specific reason other than big business tycoon stuff with, um, you know, lots of buying up property and destroying property and apparently bulldozing. Uh, What was it? It was, um, let me stop screen sharing and pull up my notes. It was apparently a lot like 200 residences were bulldozed and i'm sorry 800 tenements so 800 places where someone could be living and 200 businesses so apparently robert quote bulldozer moses (laughs) was a part of that and um yeah and apparently he said that um it was all slums, and even the people in them wanted out. So I don't know. It sounds like it's a it's a pretty uh, you know big city planning type controversy and type of thing. And um, yeah. So anyway, the the Met is now at the Lincoln Center in the building we're uh, familiar with. So, anywho, that's what happened today. In uh, sounds like a gentrification uh, process, pre gentrification, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, yeah, nothing good happens without something bad happening first, it, it's, it seems to be. But then again, I don't know. I mean, it seems like any type of expansion, city planning, any development like this, there's probably a huge controversy. And yeah, I don't know. Like, like for all I know, that quote could have been right. Maybe it, were, it was all terrible housing. And, and for all I, can, all I know, they relocated people to like better amenities and, and this or that. So I, I really don't know. I like that you're an optimist. Good. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, anywho, thanks for... Uh, oh, and also, Jacques Dupuy uh, died today, so... Yeah. Nobody it's, cares. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. The music's good. Those pieces are, those pieces <laughs> are good. I'm just thinking Ben is not... I don't hear Ben's voice enough, and I thought he would throw in a joke or something. No, I'm just thinking, like, oh, yeah, remember that guy from Music History? <laughs> uh, oh, Jocelyn's good. I, I remember thinking in... Um, yeah, so Jocelyn Dupuy, like, famous uh, Renaissance composer and, like, the first master of, like, you know, polyphony and vocal music. I, I remember thinking, you know, when I when I taught that little lineage and in music appreciation class like the first time you get to push play and it like actually sounds good is when you introduce Shawscan. that was my opinion like it just really seemed like they were still figuring it out before i'll, then it, I'll, I'll vouch for that I'll, I'll vouch for that yeah yeah it's like the first and then after that it's like there's so much great polyphonic motet madrigal blah 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 blah, blah. all that stuff is, is like really good well hey anywho you all our guest today she's a passionate advocate for new music and australian music she told me don't quote my bio verbatim so i'm trying not to but it's going to sound a little <laughs> a little mechanical she's commissioned over 50 new works for percussion she's a member of several performing groups the acclaimed electroacoustic sextet decibel on uh, and australia's leading percussion group called speak percussion a theater percussion project called the sound collectors and the chamber ensemble intercurrent and this one's a mouthful so so bear with me on this one she's a senior research fellow an Australian Research Council's Discovery Early Career Researcher Award Fellow at Monash University, uh, where she's also the percussion coordinator. So, uh, hey, welcome, Louise Devinish. How's it going? How you going, mate? 
Yeah. <laughs> hi, Casey. Hi, all. Yeah, going okay down here. Great to see you all on screen. Do, do people do people say how you going, mate? Uh, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> okay, I've been to Australia two times, and uh, one of one of uh, a friend there gave us little cards like, hey. I hear a common Australian sayings, and that's that's the one that stuck with me. Is how you going? Yeah, how you going? How's it going? Either of those, I'm guilty. I use both uh -huh. of them. Uh huh. So it's like nine a.m. there right now. Yeah, something like that. Just after. Uh huh. So it's it's tomorrow there, and you're in Melbourne. How uh, how are things there? I I read just today that Melbourne's like really cracking down on people wearing masks and being real careful with COVID. And I mean, of course, I think that's good news. We should be all be careful. But it also sounds like maybe maybe it's kind of rough right now. Is that right? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, I think it's kind of rough everywhere in the world right now. And in, in many ways, I think, gee, I'm so lucky I'm at home and I'm able to be talking to you guys. And so things are not so bad in that, that scheme of things. But it's, it's interesting that we're talking today because we're in our sort of second lockdown stage here in Melbourne at the moment. And some new uh, rules came in overnight, actually. So as of last night, we now have a curfew here. Um, and yeah, we've been declared, I think they've called it something like the state of disaster. So everyone's movements are much more restricted. And yeah, masks have been a thing for a while now, um, but we're pretty much at home for the next at least six weeks. So which is, you know, these precautions I think are good. Yeah. So, hey, what does it mean? I just did this introduction about your research fellowship and I, something else I wanted to include in your, your intro is that uh, you're really, I mean, it seems like you're a rock star there in Australia and a, a rock star percussionist by by any measure, uh, from what I can tell. And you also have like a really substantial research component to your career. And I think a lot of us, I know I do, just kind of like tolerate like, like research in, in our schooling. Like I kind of just tolerated it and like did what I had to to like make sure I could keep playing. Uh, and then, of course, I was later inspired by by really good music academics and realized like, oh, this is actually so, so, so cool. So. I don't know, like, like, what exactly does this research fellowship mean? Like, what, what are you up to? Okay, it's a, it's a good question. So I just started it a few months ago. So I, I moved to Melbourne from Perth in Western Australia about six weeks before all of this lockdown business happens. So I'm in this funny position of starting a new project and a new job um, from my house. <laughs> so, um, but the project, it's, it's a three-year artistic research project. Um, which means that, yeah, there's a lot of um, reading and writing involved, but the core of the project is uh, creating and performing and developing new works. So it's very much a performance-related project. Like how, how do you collaborate with someone in, a, in some kind of performance and then also utilize it for research? Give us a for instance. Okay, for instance, well, I think of... Um, all right, I'll, I'll maybe try and explain it the way I explain it to like new honours students who are just embarking on research for the first time and have these questions of, but I'm a performer or a composer, how can I prioritise or maintain that? And so I think of performance and research and artistic research as being like two sides of the same coin. So it's one project and there are performance for me as a performer, there are performance outputs, but then there are also written outputs as well. And so in developing all of these projects, I kind of think, okay, my tool is percussion and percussion instruments and percussive practice. 
And my method is collaboration with others, whether that's researchers or composers or sound designers. And I think the key is, you know, if you're developing an artistic research project is to find something that you can make that then can make these suites of outputs. So you share the performance stuff with musicians or audiences who are interested in that, and you share the written stuff with academics or industry publications. Yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely, absolutely. And you said you're real interested in Australian music. And is this like authentic Australian music or is this the modern composer, modern composers of Australia? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. So I think of Australian music as being an all-encompassing thing. So any music of any genre that's happening right now in this country is Australian music, whether that's uh, happening on an orchestral stage or it's pop music or it's Indigenous music. There are many... It's a, there are many types of Australian music and it's something that I'm really passionate about because it's the community that I live and I work in and I really want to be part of that. I want to contribute to it. I want to connect with the other people who are in my place making music in my time. So that's that's the, the real driver. It comes from uh, the connection with people and place, I think. Is there a flavor to Australian music, like, say, contemporary new music that, I don't know, maybe you think is distinctive that, that we don't know about? Yeah, I think for a while there I was trying to answer that question myself. <laughs> you know, is there something distinctive about it? Can you tell when you're listening to contemporary percussion music that's made in Australia as opposed to contemporary percussion music that's made in Japan or whatever? And I think, you know, I kind of go around in circles on this one a little bit, but I think ultimately uh, it's not necessarily something that you can really uh, hear when you're when you're listening to it on a recording or in performance or anything like that um, I think that there's many reasons for, for that and definitely globalization and the internet and all of this kind of stuff is, is definitely part of it um, I was looking into some of uh, your published uh, articles and one of them the abstract says um, that um, you worked on the otherwise under-recognized contributions to the development of music by women and gender-diverse artists, and it was spotlighted through academic research. So could you tell us a little bit uh, about that, especially about the under-representation? How did it come about? Are things better now? Tell us a little bit about how it works in Australia. Yeah, great. So like in many countries, I think equity and diversity are really big uh issues in contemporary music and, and heritage music practice in Australia at the music at the moment. It's something that uh, everyone I think is thinking about a little bit more than we were even five or ten years ago. Uh, so in the new music scene, which is where I work, it's been something that's um, it's an area people have been quite active in trying to address for a while now. And so there have been various things like uh, festivals or conferences uh, that have been dedicated to trying to uh, spotlight, as you say, um, some of these artists who are out there practicing now or maybe have been for a very long time that maybe for one reason or, an, or another are less visible than they might otherwise be. So it's about um, creating opportunities to make the less visible more visible, um, to increase engagement and all of that kind of thing. So there's events that are, that are going on to try and uh, tackle equity and diversity issues. Um, but there's also more uh, serious programs, I think, um, various 
say, for example, ensembles and even institutions are signing up to things like the Key Change Pledge to really work towards better gender diversity in their programming. Um, the university that I, I'm at now has got a very strong policy on Indigenous music making and awareness. So there's a lot of um, a lot of things emerging in that space, I think, which is a really uh, positive thing, even though there's a lot more work to do. I, I just wanted to add something to, to sort of, I guess, help answer Casey's question. And there was a quote, and I was trying so hard to find it, and I couldn't find the exact quote. I think it's Leonard Slatkin. Someone once asked him, like, how do you write American music? And he basically said, like, simply be an American and write music. And so I think, like, the same could could follow for Australian music. Like, what what is Australian music? Well, it's it's music by an Australian composer. <laughs> uh, and it, like the, the sort of collective cultural consciousness infuses itself into your into your music. I think that we all have, you know, the four of us have an American, well, I guess the three of us, because Ksenia is from Croatia, but the, you know, Serbia, Serbia, sorry, sorry, wrong one. Nice. <laughs> I, was thinking yeah, of Philip. I was thinking of Philip, who's from Croatia. Oh, so I totally just screwed up and Ksenia is going to be mad at me for a week. Uh, no, Ksenia is the most lovely Serbian I have ever met. Um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, All that stays in, Ben. Okay, that's good. Uh, I'm blushing now just thinking about Ksenia. Um, no, but I was going to say, you know, that, that our collective cultural consciousness, I think it, it, it blends itself into our music, whatever that may be. That was a very long-winded uh, way to paraphrase a quote and say the wrong country for where it's from. You started so well, though. What you were saying at the beginning was great. <laughs> yeah, we'll keep all of it. Keep all of it. It's, it's totally relevant. Everyone needs to know that Ksenia is from uh, Serbia. <laughs> I'll, greetings I'll get you to all that. of our I, Serbian I, I listeners, to... by the way. Hey, hey, Liz, Hi, what, Mom. What, you, have a, you have a lot of publications, but you had, you had one publication recently about, uh, I think it's called Teaching Tertiary Music in the, during the Me Too movement. Um, I know we we're just talking about diversity, but I think I think this is also something that's very, uh, you know, prevalent and active, and people are people are working on this. Can you can you give us just kind of a an idea of of what you what you talked about in there? Yeah, great. So so that article was a co-author with uh, a number of other Australian musicians. So Vanessa Tomlinson, who's a percussionist in Brisbane at the Queensland Con, Kat Hope, who's in Melbourne, also at Monash, and Cecilia Sun, who's on the other side of the country at the Uni of Western Australia. And that article was really a way of... Um, getting the word out about some of the strategies that we've each adopted in our different institutions to address gender diversity in our teaching. Uh, and they, they're all sort of formal things. So anything from requiring third year students preparing recitals to include an Australian work on the program and a work by a female or gender diverse composer on the program, um, including things like the Key Change Pledge that I mentioned before, uh, Monash has signed up to that. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, I'm sort of rambling around a little bit now, but the, the article talks about some of the different strategies and how they were responded to at first and then how they've become part of the normal practice. So I think any um, major change that happens when it affects people's programming and teaching content and student plans, uh, change can sometimes be a little bit um, rickety at first, but once it becomes normalised, um, it's quite easy to, to implement these things. And, and what are some of those things? What are some of the changes that, um, that we should be implementing? 
Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to say what everyone should be doing, but some of the things that were important where we were working, a really big one was ensuring that every concert program that was presented by um, my university um, included music by a female or gender diverse composer. Um, and that's a hard and fast rule. So we just don't accept program proposals, whether they're internal or from external guests that are by, say, all-male composers. Uh, that's something that's just, we don't do that anymore. Um, and the same goes for inviting in guest artists, whether they're performers or conductors, making sure there's a, a good um, cross-section of representation in the work that we're making within the school, but also the work that we are bringing into the school from, from outside. Um, and that's been just a totally awesome thing to watch unfold. And the number of new works and composers and processes and ideas that you discover, um, it's just been remarkable doing that. Sure. Imagine the cool thing is, okay, if I have to find a female composer to include on my percussion recital, you can do that. It might just take a little more digging. I mean, I think so often students program according to what's, and I, and I probably do it too, you know, program according to what's handy and what's right there and and um, just, just what's like quickly accessible. Um, so yeah, there are plenty of the, plenty of composers out there, you know. Yeah, and it, it's very much a team effort, I think, embarking on something like this. So for a relatively new art form like percussion, you know, I think it's it's pretty easy for us to find uh, yeah. works by female composers or gender diverse artists or, or whatever. Maybe it's a little bit more difficult for people whose repertoire, say, is in that magical space that you were talking about at the, the beginning of the podcast. And so that was something that we set up uh, at the Uni of WA, you know, was to really build um, resource banks to share with each other. So have working documents where you can go and they say, here's a huge list of, data of databases of repertoire that address all instruments and all genres. And so it's something that people can go to um, outside their area of expertise, which can be handy if you find yourself teaching a music appreciation class or a music theory class where you want to make sure in your theory class, all of the examples of chord progressions you use, you want to have diversity there as well. But it might not be an area that you work in every day. So having these resources can be really helpful. Cool. The, I was going to, I, that partially answers my question. I was going to say in so many words, you know, like the, the one thing that pops into mind that would be problematic for me, and I, I to be clear, I think that's a, a wonderful idea uh, and something that we should all adopt. But uh, for example, like it's now the, what is it, 250th anniversary of Beethoven or something like that. So, oh, I want to do a Beethoven tribute concert. You know, well, right now we probably can't do a concert in general anyway, but something like that where you're celebrating say like one specific composer and what what would be your take on the way to solve the puzzle with that yeah that's a really great question um i'm a fan of the portrait concert myself i think it's a cool thing to do sometimes is to present you know a, a whole career's worth of repertoire by a particular composer um, and i guess what i would say to that with regards to um you know trying to maintain diversity across your programming is you know if you if you do do a, a portrait concert like that that's great, but maybe over the course of your whole program, yeah. that's where you look at ban balancing out the diversity. If you can't do it in every single little program, depending on the nature of it and the constraints of you know, the commission or the festival that you're working with, maybe you try and balance it out somewhere else in your season. And I think looking at it, kind of zooming out like that can make things a little bit more manageable if you're, if you're new to this sort of thing. Speaking of Beethoven, there's a movie and I think it's 
that movie I talked about forever ago called Beethoven's Nephew. And they have this additional side plot where Beethoven has a student, female student, and supposedly, well, in the movie, she she hides uh, backstage somewhere and Beethoven's doing the, you know, the famous premiere of the Ninth Symphony and he can't hear. And, you know, of course, we know the story. He's up there conducting supposedly and he just can't hear what's going on and he's just doing his best to hold it together. Well, in the movie, she is conducting for him like she is hidden and she is listening to the orchestra following the store and like keeping him on track where he is. And it's this really beautiful idea. Unfortunately, it's totally not true. It did not happen. It's all all bullshit. Anyway, I just that just that just came to mind. Sorry, Ksenia, you had something. Uh, I was just going to ask, uh, do you know, since you have obviously done so much research and, and traveled to work with so many people, do you have any institution or, you know, uh, it doesn't matter, like a society, a, a country that you think does this really well? Obviously, it's a new thing for a lot of us. We've seen a lot of progress in the past 10 years. But who do you look up to? Who do you see does this very well? Yeah, that's a great question too. I, I don't know that it's something that, you know, one country does better than the other. I think there are really interesting things happen, happening in different places uh, on different scales. Um, I think there are a few um, ensembles and organisations out there that I think are really great models. I think what the International Contemporary Ensemble are doing is really wonderful. Uh, I think what um, one of my groups, Decibel New Music, is doing, led by Cat Hope, I think her ideas around equity and diversity are really exciting. Um, and also the work of Clocked Out, uh, Clocked Out Duo. So they're three groups that I really look to and go, yeah, I think I think what you're doing is great and, and I want to try and emulate that. So, Louise, while we're talking about a lot of your writings and publications, I wanted to make sure we talk about your book that was published just back in 2019. Um, it's called Global Percussion Innovations, Australian Perspective. Um, and I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about the research process for the book, which is, of course, a, a bigger a bigger project, probably more long term, versus the other research that you've been doing, these um, articles and, and smaller writings like that. Yeah, great. So the book was really a kind of evolution of my doctoral thesis. So uh, in the university that I went through here, and in most Australian universities, actually, the um, the thesis and the written component that's attached to like a DMA program is pretty substantial. Um, so I've really used that as a foundation for developing the book. So when you when you think about it that way, the research process for that book went over about six years, seven years, because it, it drew on some of the stuff I was doing when I was a student and then it was developed a little bit further for the book publication. I had uh, some performance excerpts I wanted to show of Louise because we talked a lot about uh, her the researcher but less so the performer so I'm just going to screen share real quick and uh, yeah please Louise if any any thoughts or co-hosts if any questions come to mind while we're watching this it's just a few minutes long
Bravo. Hey, so so we were talking about this, like, okay, you know, is there a unified style in Australian music, unified style in, in composers of the U.S.? And, of course, we, I think we all agree, no, no, not necessarily. But I feel like that demo reel specifically and a lot of the other things I've seen you have posted, there there is kind of a common, there's a commonality with the way electronics are being implemented. And I feel like there is this this cohesiveness, even though there were several different composers there, is that is that due to uh, just how like how much of you is in those collaborations? I, I think a lot of young people are very very interested in just knowing like how does how does this go from hey we write a piece with me or write a piece for me into like this wonderful performance. Yeah, so it's really nice actually to watch watch back that showreel. It's a couple of years old now, and just as I was watching it then, I thought, oh, isn't that great? You know, two years later, I'm actually in the beginnings of making new pieces with all four of those composers at the moment, uh, and I think that's one of the commonalities in the project that I, I make. They are, um, you know, often based on a personal connection and friendship and similar interests that, that you have with the people you're collaborating with. And I find that leads to more long-term collaborations. It's um, not not very common for me to just do one thing with a composer and then that's it. It tends to to grow into more things afterwards. So um, I'm glad if you've if you heard any sort of cohesiveness in that, um, that show, uh, because those works, they were um, put together with a, I guess, a, a theme in mind in that each work in the program was exploring a different metallic percussion instrument with a different form of electronic treatment. So it was really about exploring this resonant metallic sound world, which is one that I kind of love and I love to hang out in, and seeing how that palette can be extended by different electronic applications. So the first piece was an existing work, and that's just straight ahead, like there's a glockenspiel, there's a tape part, bang, you press play and off you go, and hope you get to the end at the same time as the tape. Um, but the other pieces had uh, more interactive elements. So whether they were there was live processing happening, or um, I was performing in response to what was going on in some of the um, electronic parts and subwoofer parts and things like that. So um, that was kind of a theme in that particular project. And then with the, this year, the the new works that I'm working on with these composers, they're actually for four different project so it's not they're not all going to appear in the same concert but they are all exploring um, a, an idea that I'm really interested in at the moment of what 
uh, it's kind of a newish term of, of post-instrumental practice. So how you're taking these percussive techniques that you've learned elsewhere and you're transferring and applying them to different instruments, whether they're new instruments or sculptural instruments and seeing how you can make new work in that way. And uh, these new projects are really about bringing in not just ideas from musicians, but also ideas from visual artists and sound designers and industrial designers as well. So that's a theme there. Um, I wanted to ask, how do you implement this pursuit for music yet unborn uh, into your curriculum to to your students? So how do you encourage them to explore that and to pursue the commissioning process? Yeah, yeah, I love this. Um, it's it's yeah, that's a really a great thing to do, I think, is to be connecting students with composers who are out there doing amazing things. So I really encourage my students to collaborate with each other very strongly Uh, and I set up projects every year that put the percussion students in contact with the composition students and we'll make a project together which is entirely new works or I might program a concert of repertoire that um, you know the repertoire might have some aleatoric elements in it or it might be a, a new score or a new work you know something that will give us an excuse to call up the composer and say hey can you talk to us about this and what do you think of our interpretation and that's a really exciting thing I think for everyone but particularly for first and second year students who in high school so often the idea of a composer is this like other being from another time and then so to be you know emailing or calling or working with composers it's really exciting and I think it lights a fire under a lot of students and it's something that they then want to pursue and and I do think it comes back to connecting with your community and place as well like why make music in a room by yourself with scores from the library when you can bring the people in the room I mean not in a COVID situation but maybe on screen and and make work that way. Exactly. Um, I was just going to share a tiny anecdote, sorry, because uh, I studied composition. My bachelor's degree is in that. And when I met some older person at a party or something, uh, they asked me, what do I study? And I said composition. And they literally like they're, they were holding their wine glass and they were like, oh, I thought all composers were dead. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly how it is. So, Carly. <laughs> Louise, I have to ask you, um, partially because I just love Dressor by Mauricio Coggle. Um, but it's so interesting. I, I saw on your website about the project Never Tilt Your Chair Back on Two Legs, which is a pairing of Dressor with a new work called Never Tilt Your Chair by Kate Neal. Would you tell us about this piece and how it relates to Dressor? Yeah, I love this piece, Never Tilt Your Chair. Um, it's one of my favorite projects that I've, I've ever worked on, actually, um, um, by a composer named Kate Neal. And um, the project, it grew out of a It was actually a conversation at a festival with two other percussionists, Leah Scholes and Vanessa Tomlinson, where we were talking about um, theatre percussion repertoire and realising that Dressur, even though at that time it was coming up to its 40th anniversary, it had never been performed in Australia. And we kind of went, hasn't been performed here. Well, someone's got to do it. We're going to do it. And so we said, well, right, we'll do that but that's half a program. We need something else to go with it. And so we thought, wouldn't it be great to commission an Australian composer to make a theatre percussion work that kind of, it's sort of a contrast to this very um, historic, significant, influential theatre percussion piece and put that next to a work that's been designed with more contemporary 
theatre music practices. Uh, so putting those two works together, that's how that, that came about. And the work itself, Never Tilt Your Chair, it's based around Western dining table etiquette. So it uses cutlery and crockery as its instruments, but also as a kind of set as well. So the, the um, instruments, when they're set up, they're arranged kind of like a dining room. So there are three racks of cutlery, attuned cutlery that are like the walls of the dining room. There's a chandelier overhead that's um, it's sort of many pairs, I think about 40 pairs of different uh, antique cutlery that vibrates as well. So that's kind of a set, but it's an instrument as well. And then underneath that, there's a table that's laid with crystal glasses and dessert compotes and knives and forks. And all of these things are, are the instruments as well. And then Kate had the brilliant idea of using a lot of our own um, mannerisms at the table as a kind of gestural um, influence on the work. So that influenced some of the rhythmic and compositional material that came out, but also some of the performative gestures in the work. Uh, and so that was interesting. Some of the early workshops involved some telling of stories like, well, what do you think is good manners? Where, how do you hold your fork? Would you do this? Would, what about your kids? You know, um, so com comparing all of our current experiences was a big part of it. Um, and Kate also drew on a, a kind of famous or infamous, I don't know the best way to describe it, but a, a very old book from the 1800s called uh, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, which was uh, a book that was designed uh, as a guide for the newly married woman at that time, like how to manage a house, uh, and that included all kinds of things like how to hire servants, how to cure children's ailments, uh, how to set a dining table. Um, there were recipes in there with hilarious names. Uh, and the one that really stuck in my mind was um, the useful soup for benevolent purposes. Uh, but yeah, there were all <laughs> wow, of these. I love that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, different ideas coming into this work. And um, yeah, it became a really interesting exploration of, um, yeah, dining table etiquette, but also of the differences in behaviour in public and private spheres. So putting this kind of private domestic scene on a public stage and seeing how people responded to it was really interesting. And it sounds fascinating and also a commentary on, you know, you mentioned the training of a young housewife, for example, um, to parallel the, the horse training that's referenced in circus animal kind of performance in dressur. It's very, very cool. I do have to ask because the set for Never Tilt Your Chair sounds very cool on its own um, and using kind of some everyday items the same way that Dressor does. Was there any overlap in the setup at all? No, not at all. Um, and that was a deliberate choice as well because we said, okay, Dressor has got this wooden sound world. We're not going to use wood in Never Tilt Your Chair. So we went for metal and crystal sounds, glass sounds. So there were a deliberate contrast uh, in sound world, in time and place. Um, yeah, lots of lots of deliberate contrast there in how the project was put together. So yeah, two different setups on stage, big black curtain in between, you know, <laughs> play one, wow. pull the curtain, the other. So. <laughs> As if you need, need like more things to set up when you're doing dressor on any program. I, I love how Carly, anytime we have a guest that has like anything to do with Dressor or Mauricio Kegel, you like immediately have an instant rapport with them. Because that piece so is, good. yeah, because that piece is, is so like, it's like you all just mag magnetize together. 
Yeah, but Carly, I think you were going to talk to us a little about uh, one of Luis's works uh, specifically and kind of dive into it for us. Yeah, so I, I found on Luis's Facebook, actually, that she wrote a piece early on in the quarantine all the way back in March when we probably thought this might all be over soon. Um, it's called Tot. For, she wrote it for the Decibel New Music Project, Two Minutes From Home. Um, so you can find it on the Decibel Facebook page or also on their Vimeo, vimeo.com slash Decibel New Music. Um, and I want to share with you, the, there's a program note at the start of the video that Louise wrote, and it says, TOT is a percussive representation of the daily cycle of information surrounding COVID-19. Messages from news apps, social media, and communities in different time zones are often out of sync or slightly contradictory, and the barrage of information grows exponentially, threatening to overwhelm you until you turn your device off. Um, and it's dated March 28th. I think that, that sounds like so long ago right now. Uh, Louise, to, to start off, would you tell us a little bit about this piece and what you were feeling at the time? Yeah, so this piece, uh, I mean, I'm not really, I don't call myself a composer. I haven't written many pieces. And this one really just kind of emerged as a result of being at home and not having access to instruments and having to find another way to be creative. This is part of a, a wider project called Two Minutes From Home, which is something that we put together in response to hearing about the lockdown and the arts industry here just evaporating overnight. And so what is happening in that project is every fortnight, so every second Friday until the end of the year, a new two-minute piece is being released from a different composer. So we've commissioned 20 works um, from composers who we've worked with before, so we have an existing relationship. Uh, and so we're able to kind of collaborate with them having already had some, some interaction in the past. Uh, interspersed in these um, weeks of online premieres, there's a little podcast talking about the work as well. So I was kind of the guinea pig for this project because we talked about it and I was like, oh yeah, I have something. And so, yeah, I, I put this piece together and it was really, I feel like at that time, I, I so clearly remember that feeling of just obsessively checking the news and then you'd check your social media and then you'd have a phone call with a family member and all of this information was coming in. And it did reach a point every day where it just started, you could sort of feel the tension kind of rising and the only way to control it for me was just to be like okay turn that thing off and just watch something on the Disney channel and then you can come back to this later um, so so that uh, that uh, idea of having all of these different um, bits of information kind of hitting you from all sides is represented in this piece taught in that there's six performers they're each playing uh, a different rhythm it does actually stack out to a kind of normal polyrhythm what you see on the page there does it could be translated into other notation and you'd see what the rhythmic relationships are um, but that that's how it's represented in that piece and it's 
uh, scored for six noodle bowls because that was the one thing that I knew that everyone would have at home. Um, and the idea of uh, what instruments people have at home was a really big one for me at the beginning of this lockdown. So I've been working from home for four months now, and there was this sort of scramble when we, we heard that was happening of, okay, take home from work what you're gonna need to be able to keep making work at home. And I had this kind of moment of, but what do I take? What's, what's my instrument? I have I live in an apartment. Like what what am I going to take with me? So I grabbed a vibraphone. I grabbed a glockenspiel, um, and that's all I've got as far as like real instruments at home or one cymbal as well. Um, and so that even that was an interesting idea of like what what is the instrument for a percussionist? But then what is the instrument that non-percussionists will will have? Well, they're not going to have vibraphones, but they're all going to have a bowl in in their cupboard, and if not a chopstick, some kind of wooden spoon or honey swizzler or something to strike it. To strike it with and sure enough they did right well it's a it's a really nice effect um you all should listen to it if you haven't already but the the six bowls kind of overlapping i was going to ask if you did all six yourself or if there was six different people no each person so i'm the only percussionist in the group so there's a mm -hmm. viola player cellist flute clarinet piano but they all got got the bowl out and joined me <laughs> i think something like this can be Pretty, pretty daunting for for young people who haven't done much video editing, and of course, there's a cool graphic score component to this, and uh, I'll I'll edit it in so that people will have uh, have a look by now. But can can you just kind of tell us how how you got that that animation, and just maybe just a brief summation of putting something like this together? Sure. So Tort is scored in an iPad application called the Decibel Score Player, which is something that the group developed in 2012 uh, in response to wanting to be able to easily read and rehearse and perform pulseless music and music that incorporated electronics with acoustic instruments. So the iPad app, you know, you can get it on the iTunes store. It's there for anyone to use. Uh, and it also comes with a score creator uh, app that you can just download for free. And so any image that you make, any score uh, that you make as an image, you can just import into this score creator and it gets set into this scrolling score format in the decibel score player that you see there. So, um, yeah, there are many, many different ways people could respond to this scrolling score idea, but it's a really awesome way to put together uh, music that maybe doesn't have a time signature or would otherwise be coordinated using a clock. It's a really great way to be able to rehearse and perform that music without having the need for people following phones or clocks and the challenges of synchronization that come along with doing that. I was going to say, there's this website, I should actually check if it's still there before I say this, but uh, have you guys ever heard of, I think it was called nbflat.net, maybe? No. Um, yeah, nbflat.net. Um, and it is, uh, it's obviously a play on Terry Riley's NC, uh, but there, it's a, this grid of uh, like 20 YouTube videos, and they're all little segments that are just nbflat. Oh, and uh, like yeah, and you can just press play and pause any of them as you like. And there's this one like cool, like, you know, like voiceover of someone talking about in the future, we'll have, you know, thumb drives that can store thousands of gigabytes of information, you know, like the size of elephants, but they'll be the size of your thumb, but they'll have elephants. It's, it's, it's super cool. So yeah, if you're, if you're bored for a little COVID, just want to relax and do something mindless one night, check out nbflat.net. 
and you can also very easily perform. Literally, if you just play anything in the key of B flat on whatever instrument you have available, that sounds pretty cool. My friend has a cool idea for the same kind of website, and I'm begging him to do it. He's worried it's like kind of rude because it is, but it's called the Philip Glass Symphony Generator, and it's like in this little <laughs> box, it goes do do da da do do da da do do, in this little box, it goes do 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 that, and anyway, you can just make a. I think we're going to get flagged for copyright for what you just sang now, but that's cool. Oh, for Phil <laughs> Carly, finish us out on that, uh, on Tot. Yeah, well, one of the things about Tot and, and so much of what else has been happening through this time uh, with the arts is, is that there's so much we can do as artists and musicians to help people relate to and understand and work our way through all these challenges that, that we're facing in different ways. Um, this piece in particular expresses a feeling I know that we're all familiar with, right? Like, like you're getting notifications from here and CNN's on nonstop in the background. It's just like it's overwhelming and at a certain point you have to turn it off. Um, and it just, it builds up slowly and it's distressing and, and everything. Um, so I think, I think there's just a, a point, even if the information is important, it's all urgent, it's completely deserving of all of our attention, there's still a point where it can just become too much. Um, so I've been thinking about all this and also we're, we're coming up on the start of the new school year and you know within the next couple of weeks I think for most of us and our students are likely to have had a whole range of different experiences during this time as we all have too. Some people might have been super productive like really able to take advantage of the time and the space and accomplish a whole lot over the summer and some might have had like very real hard times and struggles with their family, with relationships, with health finances, um, and of course, mental health. Um, so I, I found this article while I was mulling all of this over. It's on motherjones.com, uh, written by Matt Simon, and it's called Your Body Can Get Overwhelmed by the Constant Unrelenting Pressures of This Horrible Year, which is a very dark title. Uh, and the subtitle is All This Chaos Might Be Giving You Crisis Fatigue. And I hadn't really heard this term before, but as soon as I did, I felt like, oh, like I recognize that. That's what this you know, four or five month period has been full of and it's basically talking about like the body's response when you have a threat or a stressful situation which is to flood itself with cortisol and adrenaline to help you be able to deal with whatever you're facing um, but when this happens over a long period of time rather than a short period of time um, which might be happening for a lot of people right now we just get too much of these hormones and we can have effects like anxiety or insomnia um, and long-term health-wise, you can have weight gain, high blood pressure, even bone loss, I guess bone density. Um, so all of this is to say that there are very real reasons to feel stressed and anxious right now, but it's very, very important now, probably more than ever, to make sure you're taking care of yourself and your mental health and managing stress um, because it can take a toll on you, especially long-term. So I thought maybe we could all share a couple of things that have helped us during this time deal with with stress and anxiety. Um, I'll go first. And for me, uh, practicing yoga and, and just getting making sure to get regular exercise has helped me a ton. Um, also, listening to music for fun, which admittedly is not something that I get to do all the time. Um, when when everything is going super fast, it's not something I, I have the time to do has been has been really good. And of course, turning off the news, turning, you know, setting down the phone, setting down um, whatever device. Um, so that's been helpful for me. Ben, what have, what have you been doing to cope and manage your stress during this time? Yeah, so I've, I've also been like very consciously forcing myself to exercise. 
Uh, I've been very conscious of my budget. It's it's been nice to get myself very financially on track by like cooking basically every meal at home. I think I've eaten out about five times since March. Um, so I've been like a champion of eating at home. Uh, Isn't but then that more expensive for you. The no, way you cook. I, I can. I can <laughs> ben, Louise, Ben is a very good at home. I'm an elaborate chef. Um, but yeah, I mean, that that's mostly like the the VIP guest treatment that you got, Casey. I, 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 you know, I can eat plain at home. But no, I was I was gonna say that the the main thing for me has been, and this like coming off of the uh, Chris Devini and Patty Nimi episode a few episodes ago. Chris Devini talked about like what can you do now to prepare for the the first audition after all this happens? What can you do now to prepare for the next step? And granted, I'm not taking orchestral auditions, um, but I was kind of like, what like what can I do in my life to get myself set up for success? We I don't think any of us need to learn hours upon hours of repertoire right now because we just don't have an output for it. You could learn three whole programs of music and don't have an output for it. But for me, I like I deep cleaned my entire house, and then I have right over here set up. In fact, I'm not even ashamed. I'll show it. Uh, oh, I gotta unblur my camera. Um, let's see here if I can do this. Uh, there we go. Uh, I have set up uh, a practice pad right in front of my TV, uh, and I have sat there for <laughs> hours and hours working on my snare drum technique and just blazing through Netflix. And, and like double I, kick I, pedal. What's up yeah, with that double I, kick I, pedal? I got a double kick pedal. Not ben, I, ben, I like that we're talking about all these radical adjustments. And you just said, I set up a drum pad. <laughs> no, no, no. And, but I mean, like, the, the whole area that's is what you like, said. configured for that. I mean, uh, and no, yeah, that's like, awesome. I got a, I I got a double kick pedal, not because I'm trying to play heavy metal, but I just wanted to work on my like four way coordination. But yeah, like, just getting this set up very comfortably i bought a new really nice rock and sock drum thrum with a back to it and everything um so yeah like i i, I was just like i just want to get my technique in shape so that when i get back to the repertoire i'm like ready to go well i, I i'll say like luis i i just need to keep playing you know uh tackling projects and i know the first time i really ever felt the like whoa i can't practice like i i really wanted to was when i was a grad student it was winter vacation and they locked all the practice rooms and buildings at boston conservatory and that was really the first time i ever went uh, you know two straight weeks without practicing i had maybe gone a day or so. I mean, of course, this is me as a student and practicing all the time, all the time, so much through high school and college. And I don't know about you all, but I, I would get this feeling, you know, if I hadn't got playing what I wanted to for I mean, even less than a day, I kind of got this like itchy feeling like, oh, I got to get back to work. It just doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. And of course, now, I mean, being an adult, yeah, like you, you got to go pretty long stretches without practicing. But yeah, I've just tried to, like Louise said, she she made a project and invented this top piece that, that we like. Uh, I just find myself doing similar things. What about you, Ksenia? Um, I, I, I'm pretty good at not practicing. No, uh, just kidding. I, uh, I, I did, uh, I did a bunch of things. I mean, I'm really good at, uh, hanging out and, and figuring out my own day. I, I've still woke up like at 6am every day and went to bed at nine and exercised every day. I think that type of self-discipline is very easy for me and it really helps. 
Um, I arranged the Rite of Spring for marimba and piano. That was my big project. I love that piece. So I, I got that. Yeah. So now I'm going through it and figuring out whether I uh, dug up my own grave for the marimba did that, part. Did, but that, did that take a couple hours? Or? Oh, yeah, a couple hours. No, it was uh, maybe... Maybe a full month. I mean, I did research. I watched everything I could find on the Rite of Spring and different performances and documentaries and read about it every day. And then every day I would do maybe half a movement. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, the last movement took a very long time. And again, I'm sure they're, it's going to go through revisions. But that was one big project. I just I learned some pieces that I never had time for. And I, I read a favorite, lot. What's your favorite spot in that piece? Ooh. Favorite movement. Can I answer while Ksenia thinks? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's that the fourth section, I think it is, when the there's uh like the the big gong moment that comes in, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, no, I like and the that. Trombone like the Lissando. Yeah. Exactly. So heavy metal. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No. I. I love. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm blanking now on on names because they were in Russian slash French. Um. But I love the the first slow movement. The the strings. That's my. That's that's spring spring rounds. Spring rounds. That's yeah, my thanks. favorite. Yeah. That's the one that's that has my the favorite. Song. Yeah, yeah, that's, no, that's yeah, the one that has the, the height of it. Is like, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's that's the peak of it. So I mean, it's it's lovely, but so much of it works really beautifully for for percussion. So I'm really excited about learning that. Yeah. Luis, any tips? And then I think Carly should tell us if the article suggests anything. Yeah, I had no idea this was such a serious thing. Yeah, I guess my my survival tip. I get my music survival tip would be don't feel bad about not practicing. You know, you mentioned there there are often young listeners to this podcast, and I think realizing that actually there's a lot of people out there not practicing right now is kind of it's kind of okay. Um, you know, as long as you get back onto it at some point. But my my other pro tip is that I've taken up badminton in the backyard as a kind of move around sort of stress relief kind of thing, and that that's been satisfying. <laughs> Carly, did the article say anything about what we should do or have any suggestions about this? Here's here's how it closes. It, it kind of didn't. It talked about here's what can happen with long-term long -term stress and one crisis after another. Um, but it, it closes by saying they're talking some about not just COVID-19, but also the, the racial injustices and the protesting. And um, the article closes with a quote that says there's a social unraveling happening. Hearts are weary with a collective grief. On the one hand, we hold hope for real and meaningful change. And on the other, we feel deep despair. Sitting with that paradox is exhausting. If we can somehow let both the loss and gain sweep through us, then we experience humanity authentically. And perhaps that is cathartic. Cool, cool. Well, hey, you all, thanks so much. And Luis, it's so great to meet you. Thanks so much, uh, Luis. Lisa and I connected. She uh, invited me to be a guest uh, guest presenter online at the, the Monash University coming up later this year. And it was just I looked into who she was and started poking around on her website. And I was just really pleased with, uh, yeah, just so impressed with everything she has to show us. So thanks so much for uh, yeah taking your morning and hanging out with us. Yeah, oh, I really appreciate the invitation and the tough questions. So yeah, thanks all. <laughs> Yeah. Thank sure, you. Sure. Okay. Hey, thanks everybody. We'll catch you on the next one. So, all right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.